Yo, this is Pastor Tito, and welcome to the Revolutionary Podcast, where I'm here to help you find Jesus and follow him. I think sometimes it is also more uh, complicated to a certain extent in the sense of we make it complicated because we want to pray our way, but God is very clear about how we can pray, and there's so much in his word. And so we've seen a lot so far, and last week we kind of made a little bit of a turn where we went from looking at the, the Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer, and the, the one that you are all familiar with. But we've been looking as of last week, so if this is the first time online, the first time here, we've been looking at how Jesus actually prayed. And we've been looking at the longest recorded prayer in the Bible of Jesus, and that's found in John 17, which is, that is the true Lord's Prayer, because here Jesus is praying. And so last week we started it, we're going to wrap it up um, next week, and we're calling it, and, and I'm, I'm calling this the greatest prayer ever prayed, all right? The greatest prayer ever prayed is found in John 17. You, you guys got to check it out, all right? And so last week we talked about how Jesus prayed for himself. Today we're going to look at a different aspect and focus of that prayer. But not only in that prayer do we get to see the heart of Jesus and who God is, and we also tend to, we also will see all right, ourselves in Christ. Because see, you and I, when we want to try to find ourselves, which is the big one, right? I don't know if you ever did this or heard someone say when they get to a certain age, I just want to, I just want to find myself, right? I want to find myself and go explore and find myself. Such a weird rule of phrase, right? But we can't find ourselves outside, you know, we can't find ourselves in ourselves or in this world. It is only in Christ that we see these things. And so we noticed that last week, we focused on this idea because you and I, a lot of people tend to look at God as another means to an end. And a lot of people, and you may do this, and we all do, we all have a tendency of doing this, even the most veteran Christian, where you can see the, your faith in Jesus and the Bible as a means to an end. And a lot of the end is my purpose and my identity, right? That's a big thing right now. What do you identify as, right? Our culture's huge on identity. How do we identify ourselves, right? Notice that there's a big confusion and there's a big debate. Who determines our identity? Is it us? Is it how I feel? Is it what I think? Right? And versus outside of that. And then obviously our purpose, right? That one's a, always a big topic. How to live out your purpose now, right? That's always a big, that, one, that one's going to get the clicks. That one's going to get that. But when you realize that the problem with our identity and our purpose is they both are rooted in ourselves, which is what we call sin, which is what God calls sin. Sin is just doing nothing when, sin is, is replacing God with yourself, making it all about you. And so last week we saw that your purpose in life is actually found in the, perp in the person of Jesus. And that the only way that you can find your purpose in the person of Jesus is by having Jesus forgive you of your sins. And one of the greatest sins that you and I commit, again, I just said it, is when we want to use him for our purposes. That's not it. Like we want to use God for our purposes or we want to get God to affirm how we see things and our identity. We want to be rooted in ourselves versus something else. And so today we're going to see a little bit of the same thing and ultimately really how to fulfill your purpose because your identity and your purpose is found in Christ and your ultimate purpose is to know him, be restored by God, make him known, to do your best to do that. But then how? 
How do you fulfill that purpose? And how do you walk in this? Well, we're going to see some, something interesting in, in Jesus' prayer because he prayed about this. But we got to make sure that we understand and we are applying the right things in the right way. So, for example, I don't know if we have any golfers in the house. Um, I, I wish I could. That's a tough sport. I wish I could. Um, I know, the, what's his face? Uh, who's the famous golfer? Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods just created a putt-putt place, guys. Uh, you know, think of, top, if anyone has gone to top golf before, think uh, top golf, but putt-putt version of it to a certain extent. And uh, it's Tiger Woods. And he, mil- he, he built the, a course here in Tampa. So it's pretty cool. So I, I haven't checked that out. No one's invited me yet. So now there it is. So that's on you. But anyways, um, I want you to look at this golfer. All right. You see his shoes? If you've ever worn, my dad used to play golf, and he has golf shoes, and they have these weird little cleats. Let me ask you a question. If you and I were going to hoop right now, we were going to go play basketball, and I give you a pair of golf shoes, how are you going to play? All right? It's going to be weird, right? Because it doesn't have the same grip. And, and you could be the best player ever, right? You know, give me, I don't care, give me Kobe, give me LeBron, give me Michael. And this is not to debate now over this because some of you are already raging in your head and like saying, it's Jordan, it's, no, no, calm down, all right? But listen, all right, <laughs> there you go. Wow, that's a wild card. All right, so Larry Bird. All right, so but think about this. If you give the best, the greatest basketball player ever or even now, and you take off his shoes and give him some golf shoes, is it going to affect his game, yes or no? Of course it is. He's going to have to adjust and figure things out because it's, those shoes were not made for that game. And the thing is, guys, is when it comes to, if you're you know, for Christians now, you got to understand that there is the world that we are living in, and we have to have the right shoes on in order to walk and live in this world. And so there is a God-given life, eternal life that God gives us. But you and I cannot walk in eternal life if we have the shoes of the world on. You see what I'm saying? We're there. That's where I'm going. And so we need to understand what are those shoes? What does it look like? And Jesus actually reveals that. And we we see that discovered here in the, again, the greatest prayer ever prayed in Jesus' second prayer request. He had three prayer requests. This is why we're doing it in three weeks. First week he prayed for himself, but it really wasn't about himself. He was praying that the Father would glorify him, knowing he was going to go on the cross. And he was like saying, I trust you that you're going to raise me back from the dead. I mean, I, I get that vibe a little bit when I have to baptize people. If you ever think about it, put yourself in my shoes. All right. Think of the responsibility I have. All right. When I go to baptize somebody, this person is trusting me that I'm going to bring them back up, you know, because I, I got the leverage. I could, you know, if I wanted to, you know, I, I got leverages, you know, your knees are bent. And I was like, bro, I got you. You know, if I, if I could take you out, I could. And so, but you're trusting me. If you're ba- think about that. When you're being baptized, fully submerged in that way, you are trusting the person to bring you back up. And so Jesus is showing that in the first prayer. And his first prayer request was for himself, but it wasn't selfish. He wanted to glorify the father and so that he can give us eternal life. And now here, he has his second prayer request. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a parameters. I'm going to give you some parameters to make sure so that you are not um, careful to read what we're about to read. All right? So we're going to explain this first. Here's the thing. It is very, very easy for us to, when you read the Bible, to already impose yourself into the text. All right? You read something, and you're like, ooh, that's nice. I like that. You know, you know, and we treat the Bible sometimes like a buffet line, a golden corral. We're like, ooh, I like this, and I like this, and mm, I don't know about that. Mm, I like this. And so it is very easy for us to read ourselves quickly. So I'm going to challenge you for about 30 minutes or so 
to not read yourself into the text because Jesus is actually praying for someone specifically. And here's the thing. He's not praying about you yet. The next week, we're going to focus on how Jesus actually prayed for me and you, like literally us. He prayed for us 2000 years ago. But I just want you to know that what we're going to read today, it ain't about you. All right. So do, under, agreed, understood online, everybody here. All right. It's not about me yet. It's not about me. I need you to do that because I want you to focus on what Jesus is praying about and who he's praying about. Because that is how we can see just uh, really just we get to see Christ in, in so much um, clearer way when we read it right and read it in a better way. So, all right, we're going to I got two points for you. So if you are taking notes, the first thing we're going to look at is this is Jesus prayed for his disciples. And this is what we're looking at. He prayed for his 11. All right. And the first thing we're going to look at is he prayed for his disciples security. Now, the disciples that we're going to discuss are the 11, all right? Jesus had 12, and he actually mentions the 12. You're going to see it right now. He had 12 disciples that became his apostles, but Jesus had more disciples. He had, a, I mean, a large group. At one point, it would fluctuate from anywhere from 70-something, 70 72, to 120, sometimes even more, and then less, depending on what was going down. But Jesus had a, a lot. And by the way, there were uh, men and women. And that was a big thing for women disciples. That wasn't a, a normal thing. And Jesus was kind of ruffling a lot of feathers and saying, hey, no, you know, he's, he's changing and he's revealing what he is going to do. He's making a new people unto himself. He's not rewriting the rules. He's, he's showing what it ought to look like. There's a place for the young and old men and women. And so when we look at this, he's praying for his top 11. But in praying for his top 11, he's also praying for the other disciples that are a part of that network, if that makes sense. So again, just like Jesus, Jesus in the first one, he prayed for himself, but he was really thinking about everyone. And so as he's praying for these 11 specifically, he's praying intentionally, considering all the other disciples that are alive in that moment. All right. So let's read the first half. We're going to break it up. Look at verse 6 through 13 as Jesus prays for his disciples' security. So... Uh, 16 and I'm in the wrong spot. Look at that. I put it in the wrong place. All right. Now, here we go. Uh, here we go. I have, Jesus is saying, I have revealed your name. He says, I have revealed your name to the people you gave me. He's talking about his disciples here. I revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. And he says, now they know that everything you have given me is from you because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. So they were believing that Jesus was the Messiah. All right. So they're saving faith here. Old Testament saved. So by grace through faith, I pray for them. Now, Jesus is praying for the disciples. Again, who's he not praying about? me. Okay, good. Not yet. He ain't praying about you. He ain't praying about you. He's praying about the disciples. I pray for them. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have, Lord, is yours and everything that you have is mine. And I am glorified in what word? In who's the them? The disciples. Hang on that one. God, Jesus just said, I am glorified in them. That's a huge statement. We're going to come back to that later. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you. 
Holy Father, protect them by your name, that you um, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. We're going to focus on the oneness next week some more. While I was with them, I protected them by your name that you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the son of destruction, so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas. Interesting enough, as Jesus is praying this right now, Judas is betraying him in the temple, selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver as Jesus is praying this. All right, next one. Now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. All right, now that's the first half. Now here's the thing. Some of you, as you read that, if, if this was your devotional for the day, you would have read this and be like, man, I don't know, like really, like if you probably would have read this first, first rip, you would have been like, I, I guess, you know, okay, interesting, moving on, right? Because there's sometimes when you look at it, there's not a lot there, but this is why, guys, I want you, and I preach in a way, and to, to get you guys also to, to teach you to read slowly. When you read slowly, you get to simmer and see, there it is. When you read slowly, you, you see better, all right? And so that's the idea. So what are we seeing here? This whole section, all Jesus is praying for is his disciples' What word? Security. All right? Is there security? And there was three things that we saw. There was their knowledge, perseverance, and joy. So here's what, what is Jesus so concerned about. He, he is concerned about the security of their identity. Remember, at the very beginning, he said, I have revealed your name. I have revealed your name. The, the, they, he wants to make sure that their identity is rooted in who he is. It's in God. It's not in themselves. He's revealed, not their identity, he revealed Jesus's, well, God the Father's identity, which is what dictates that. And so he has revealed that very thing, his name. Now, guys, I want you to know that in, in Hebrew culture, and really, it's not Hebrew culture. I think it's a lot of cultures that names represent your nature, all right? Now, Hebrews, for real, like every time we read the Bible, everybody's name is not by mistake. Every person's name means something. And if you ever read a Bible, if you ever read a story in which someone's name changes, their name changed, it's because their nature changed. Who they are changed. They are no longer the same person. Their name changed because their nature changed. And so, but here when he's saying, I have revealed your name, Meaning, I have revealed your nature. Jesus over and over said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul would say that Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. You know, Jesus, the word, John earlier in his own book, the word became flesh. Jesus is nothing but literally the visual. He is the illustration of the message, right? Have you ever heard, again, I do this, like I just did it a minute ago, right? I use illustrations in my message so that you can not only hear and see, right? Well, Jesus, the message of the whole Old Testament, has always pointed to Christ. Jesus said it himself. And so then he embodies the message. And he doesn't just want to say it now. He's going to show it. And now he's going to show you what love looks like by dying on the cross for us. And he's going to show us the power of God. That he not only is the one true God, but he proves it by having power over sin and death itself. That he can raise and come back from the dead but your name is your nature now here i don't know about you guys i don't know if you ever chose your name or if you have kids you chose their names for a reason okay that you know we do that but sometimes their name doesn't necessarily reflect their nature sometimes let's just be real right sometimes their name doesn't reflect their nature but you know what we always do we do this culturally don't we we call each other names 
And when we call each other names, aren't we declaring someone's nature? Think about that. Think of the negatively. When you call someone, bro, you a loser. You're calling them a loser. Your name is loser. Why? Because that is who you are, right? We use names to declare your nature, right? You're awesome. It's a good thing, bad. You know, we do it in the good and the bad. There's a Spanish word that it is a, it is a loaded word, all right? It is a name that you call somebody, all right? It is called malcriado, all right? Malcriado is a name that you use to describe someone. And it is, this is who you are. Tu eres, you are a malcriado. Malcriado is made up of two words, if you don't know Spanish. Two words, you got mal, which is bad, and criado, which is raised. And so, um, help me out. If you call someone a malcriado, aren't you here, because we got a lot of Spanish people here, you're calling somebody something that is a, they're misbehaving, right? They're, they're acting like a kid. Yeah, un malcriado is, you're acting like a child, not in a bad way. You're, you're being responsible, being this, you're being that. But if you break down that word, that is a loaded word. A malcriado means, listen, you are poorly raised. Your parents have failed you. <laughs> Think about that. If you call someone un malcriado, why are they? It's not an insult to them. You're insulting their mother and their father. It's like, you are a malcriado. Your parents have failed you. Your parents are losers. <laughs> like, that's a loaded word. Emotional damage for real, right? That is a loaded word. But see, we do that, don't we? We call things names to declare it's what? Nature. So Jesus says, I have revealed your name. These, they have come to know in the one true God. And notice Jesus said, and they believed. So he is praying for their security on what they've come to know. Because see, guys, here's something about God's name. It has to be, his nature has to be revealed. God is not a a math equation that you can figure out. He is not a puzzle that you can piece together, okay? He is not a problem to solve. Jesus or God is a mystery that has to be revealed. It's like magic, all right? Well, we went to a magic show a couple years ago. I'll never forget. It It was weird. I mean, it was like, all right, listen, I know he's a Christian at all, but I think he's possessed because it was some of the things that he did were just so like, no, 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 mm -mm, no. You were trying to rebuke him from the back, I remember. And so... There was, uh-uh, it was weird. But here's the thing about magic and magicians is that in magic, you can see a trick and be like, how'd you do that? Anybody ever been confused by a magic trick? How'd you do that? And they could be in front of you. I saw it live and I'm like, no, witchcraft. No, uh-uh, I don't know. But you know what's crazy about magic is that once the magician, you can't figure out the trick. You, that, that, a good magician, you can't figure him out. But once he reveals the trick, you're like, oh my gosh, it's that simple. It was right there. It's, it's always a sleight of hand. It's always the easy thing. Well, here, that's, that's God. God is here, and he's, he's been trying to communicate through all humanity. And Jesus ultimately reveals God to us. And then when we see him, we're like, that's it? Like, and now you, you can't unsee it after that. So he is praying for their, their, their security of what? Their understanding of who God is. And so that's why he prays for their perseverance. Notice that he was saying a minute ago, did you catch it? He was saying, Father, I protected them. I guarded them. So now I need you to guard them, protect them. When did Jesus ever protect them? You know, um, I mean, there wasn't anybody, you know, there wasn't ever a fight going down that Jesus was like, I throwing hands and I say, I got this, Peter. You know, he didn't do that. You know, he didn't do those. And like, you know, these are my boys. You know, he, he didn't just like step in. And so it's weird. I mean, the only time that there's a fight, the only time there's a fight actually happens after this prayer. 
right? In which they're getting after him. And then, you know, one of the disciples lops off one of his ears, of the ears of, of, a, of a soldier. And the, the irony is, oh man, I was going to confirm this guy. Some, one of y'all got to look. But out of the gospels, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John wasn't there. The others were there. They have the same account of what happened to Jesus. And it said, and a disciple, a disciple, didn't give a name, a disciple knocked, uh, you know, somebody's ear out. A disciple knocked somebody's ear out. A disciple knocked somebody's ear out. Uh, John, I think it was John. I got to look. John's the one that says, it was Peter. Like he outed him. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke didn't say it was a disciple. John was like, oh no, Peter did that. Oh, y'all got to know Peter did that. I, I got to look. I think it was John. But, um, but when we see again, this, this protecting and fighting, what was it? Jesus, the three years that he was with them, he was guarding and protecting them from the lies of the world. Why? How, how did he protect them? By revealing the truth. So that he was constantly getting them when they didn't understand it. And that's what it was. So he was trying to make sure they were secure in the truth. And the security had all these truths to, to be like an alarm system. Every time, you know, motion detector of a lie, no, the truth would identify it. And so that's how he was protecting them. And he was entrusting now the father to protect them. Because did you not hear Jesus says, I'm coming to you? Did you read that? I'm coming to you. Jesus said a minute ago in his prayer, Father, I'm coming to you. So I'm not trusting. You know, guys, again, Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. He has not risen from the dead yet. Look how confident Jesus is before he goes even to the cross. He is not worried. I know we're about to get into the garden prayer when he's stressing and blood. And in the, on Good Friday, we're going to look at the statement on when he, Jesus said, Father, why have you forsaken me? But do not forget all of these couple weeks. I mean, he is confident. He knows not only am I going to die, I trust you. You're going to bring me back from the dead and I'm going to go to you. He is confident. I mean, Jesus is walking up to the plate knowing he's going to hit a home run and how far it's going to hit in what direction and what bleacher he's going to knock it into. That is how he is walking to the cross. And so he is praying again for their security. Lord, they have come to know your name and they believe. Many, they are saved. And so he's saying, Lord, I pray that you may, you may help them to, to not lose sight or, or that the lies don't come in and, and distracts them or, or corrupts them. And then he ends with this word of joy. He says, I pray that my joy may be complete in them. That's an interesting phrase, that my joy may be complete in them, that they may have, the, again, this, this sense of, see, okay, let me say it this way better. There's an Old Testament word in Nehemiah. It says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so, guys, I want you to understand that statement. What is the joy of the Lord rooted in? Yes, it's an emotion. But what is the emotion attached to? The revelation, the joy of the Lord. It is not just an emotion that comes from God. It's an emotion that is produced by knowing this God. Do you see this? And when you have this joy that from knowing who God is, that joy gives you strength to be able to face whatever comes your way. Because guys, I'm telling you, you're more, you're, you're more happy and hopeful when you know that, my God, I, I know how the story ends. I know how the story ends. I know that my soul is secured in the hands of God. And so there's a joy that gives you that, that extra second breath in order to live. And so he's praying for the disciples that their joy may be complete. Because again, in the knowledge of who he is, and look at the joy. He actually, he says, my joy may be complete. And he said an earlier phrase. Remember what I told you? He said, we're going to hang on that for a minute. 
He said, I am glorified in who? Who did I say? In who? In them. I read that and paused because earlier he was talking about God, I glorified you, Lord, Father, glorify yourself in me. And now here Jesus is saying, I am glorified in them. And see, I've read enough of the story to be like, wait, how does that work? There's joy in Jesus' life when he looks at these 11. And if you've read the, read the story of the 11, these guys are a hot mess. They don't always get it right. Jesus is constantly, literally, like there's a one that says, how much longer must I? Like literally, as a parent, you know that feeling. I, and you, you have that. It's like, oh my gosh, uh, how long until they're 18 and move out? Oh gosh, right? Uh, we, we all have these moments, right? As friends, I'm sure you've just had it up to here with somebody, right? You've had it up to here. Like, oh my gosh, how many more do I have to deal with this person? You got customer, my boss. I'm like, how many times, right? So we know this. Jesus had these moments. And these guys, were not, they weren't getting it. They were struggling, and there was grace, and there was love. I mean, one time, Jesus says, yeah, I'm about to die. And Peter says, no, nah, man, I ain't going down like that. I'm not going to let it happen. I got you. Ride or die forever. And Jesus replies by saying, get behind me, Satan. Peter's like, what? You're like, what? You're like, what? And because, see, Jesus saw what Peter didn't. Peter thought, I got a good idea. Yeah, that's not going to happen. He didn't realize that he was being influenced by the devil. And so what did Jesus do but protect him in that moment? Get out of here. Jesus was protecting Peter, right? And so do you see that? So he does that. All, he was doing that all the time with them. But the fact that he was glorified in them shocked me because, again, they haven't, they, they've got us used them in some interesting ways, but they have more losses than, than wins. And then not only that, if you read the book of Acts, which we did that all year last year, these guys did not always get it right. They had mistakes that they would do or, or things that they were working out. Or, this is 20, 30 years post the resurrection. How could Jesus say, I am glorified in them? And I was praying about that. How, do you, how could you be glorified in imperfect people? And then I was like, there it is. See, God was not glorified because these 11 were better than anyone else. What made these 11 different was that Jesus said it. They believed in me and persevered. Yeah, they didn't get it right, but they would confess and they, they, they held on. They believed. And, and so God was glorified in imperfect people because it was God who, who revealed even himself through them, even through their flaws. His faithfulness shined even through their flaws. And God was glorified because of how they reflected Christ even in their imperfect state. And so notice right here, he's praying for their security. And, and I got an illustration before we move on to the next thing. Um, I want you to think about this. This is why he's praying about this. Have you seen this commercial? This is an old commercial by the CEO of LifeLock. Um, I don't know if you remember this uh, online, if you've seen this one before. The, you got the, is it working? Or, okay, I want you guys to look at this. This guy, LifeLock is a company that protects your um, identity, right? Your digital identity. And the CEO did a commercial, big commercial. I don't know if you remember seeing it. He put his own social security number out there. That's his real social security number. And he says, I believe in my company so much that my company can protect you from being, you're having your identity stolen and having people taking out credit cards and loans in your name. I'm going to prove it. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and I'm going to put my social security out there. And he did. Plastered it everywhere. You guys remember this? He did a couple years ago. It was a bit a minute ago. And he says, I believe 100% that my, my company works. Well, guess what happened? His identity was stolen. All right? 
his company couldn't save him. And in fact, yep, people took out loans in his name and, and they took out credit cards and they, they, they ran it up and they ruined his, his credit and he had to get it all fixed and backfired horribly. And, and um, apparently, and this is not a, a, a slam to LifeLock because, you know, LifeLock is, is a good, but this, I bring this up because why? This is LifeLock and this guy is all about identity theft, right? It's identity theft, preventing identity theft. And it's a big thing when it comes to today. Like, you got to do something. You guys got to be careful. But I really see that is what Jesus is praying about when it comes to the security of their disciples. He is praying that the enemy does not steal their identity that is rooted in him. You see this? Because that's all the enemy wants to do. He wants to rob your identity. If you're a Christian, he wants to rob your identity in Christ. And if you're not a believer, he wants to make sure that you never get to see who you are in him. And how? By keeping you from understanding who he is. So the lies, again, those lies. And so spiritual identity theft, guys, is a real thing. And so this is what Jesus is praying for. Is I pray that these 11, because he knows, Father, when I leave, devil's not going to be happy. The kingdom of darkness, by the way, the kingdom of darkness did not know this was going down. They did not know. If they knew, in fact, Scripture says in the New Testament, if the devil knew that killing Jesus would have actually caused the defeat and the conquer of sin and death forever, the devil would have kept Jesus alive. But he didn't know. Again, remember the mystery, the magic is something so simple? He didn't know until it was too late. And so Jesus knows the kingdom of darkness is not going to like what happens when I wake up. And I'm leaving <laughs> at that. And I'm leaving them behind. Which is interesting. Why would Jesus, why did Jesus come into the world to testify to the truth of the nature of God? Why did Jesus leave? To also testify to the truth through his, through his people that he may be glorified in his people. And that's a big deal. I mean, and, and, and he's praying for them. In fact, one time uh, Peter was talking about something and Jesus says, hey, Peter, before uh, around this time about the cross, P uh, Peter, I got to talk to you, the devil. The devil's asking for you by name. He wants to mess with you. He wants to get at you. He wants to try to get you, trap you. What'd you tell him, Jesus? Jesus says, just so you know, I'm, I'm praying for you. What? <laughs> it's like, that's it? I'm like, you couldn't, you, you told him to go away before. I'm like, what okay. can I, I don't I would have loved to have seen Peter's reaction. We don't know what his reaction is. But again, Jesus says, I'm praying for you. Now, guys, know that if Jesus is praying for you, ah, that's enough. That's enough. And so here, Jesus is praying for them. It's like saying, Father, all hell's going to come at them when I leave. I trust you to care for them. Look at that. Just, just the relationship in between the Father, Son, and there. And so that their identity in who? In the nature of God, in me, that they may be secured in who I am. And then he prays this other thing. So he prays two things. So if you're taking notes, here's the first one. Jesus prayed for his disciples' security. And then he prayed for their, his disciples' sanctity. Sanctity. We're going to look at that word. That's, that's a good word that some of y'all need to, we're going to learn today. So let's read. It's uh, 14 through 19. This is the rest of that prayer. I have given them your word, Jesus says. I have given them your word. Now, when he says your word, I'm here. What is the word? The name. Remember, he's revealed the name. I have given them your word. This is all the same thing. The word of God. The nature of God. The Bible re reflects the nature of God. So, I have given them your word. I have shown them your name. The world hates them or hated them. Why? Because they are not of this world. Just as I am not of this world. And I am not praying that you take them out of the world. But that you protect them from the evil one. 
They are not. His believers, talking about the disciples, they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. So here's what the prayer request is. Ready? Sanctify them by the truth. What is, this, what is truth? Your word. Your nature. Who you are is what's true. Your word is true. So sanctify them by the truth for your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I now send them. I have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. Now again, don't focus on you yet. Don't focus on you. Keep your eyes on these, you know, almost dozen, all right? So look at these 11 guys. What is Jesus praying about? So the word sanctity, guys, is, a, is an interesting word. We read this also in Luke <laughs> chapter 11, where Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, may your name be honored as holy, hallowed be your name. Same word. So he's saying, Lord, may you make them holy. May they be holy. Now, you and I may read that, and you and I think, well, like, what is Jesus asking of, of these 12 to be perfect? Because when you think holy, you tend to think that, right? But, but he's not asking them to be perfect. Because the word holy and is, is, means holy, but when it applies to us, it's a little different. See, sanctification is a big word that it's, it is an important word every believer needs to know. It's a beautiful word. You need to understand the process here. And sanctification is what he's praying for here for them. Sanctity is that they may continue to grow and mature in what they've come to know. Remember, they've received the word and they've come to know it. They believe it. So to sanctify them is for them to grow in that. So it involves your learning. I put in your notes here, it says there's learning, there's loving, and there's living. And so what is sanctified? So he is praying that their disciples' learning is sanctified. That what they've come to know, they, they may continue to know it. That they may continue to grow in it, in their understanding. And as they did, they would write letters. And, and you see... And when you read John later on in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he wrote this years later. And then the book of Revelation years later, um, Peter is the one who, is, uh, it's said that Peter influenced Mark, who wrote the gospel of Mark. And, and so you see this written later. You got Paul writing to all these people as well. Peter writes two letters, 1st and 2nd Peter, right? And so you see how they've grown in their learning, right? And, that, and that's what Jesus was praying for, that, that their minds may be sanctified. That their minds may be sanctified. Paul says this in Romans when he says, Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. What kind of patterns? The patterns of thinking and believing. Don't be conformed. Don't think like the world. Don't, don't, don't go and rationalize like the world. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in his word. And what is his word means? In his nature, who he is. See, again, we're talking about having the right shoes on. Right? We can't play, we can't play a basketball with golf shoes, right? You can't, you know, we got a swimmer, you know, people love to go swimming, right? We got a swimmer here. You know, you can't go swimming in football pads, right? Yeah, we got an Andrew Chamber, national champ at that. And so, you can't go swimming. You know, you cannot go swimming in football pads. It's going to mess with, you know, that's why they wear what they wear and shave and all that stuff, right? Every little hair matters. And so, right, I ain't going to lie. Everything matters. And so it's the same thing. So may their minds be sanctified and may they grow in their sanctified, um, may they grow in the sanctification of their mind. And how are you, how is the mind sanctified? When the lies are being replaced with truth. That's all that is. The mind is sanctified. The learning is sanctified when the lie is replaced with the truth. And that's all Jesus did with them. And that's what he's praying that the Father continue to do with them. That the lies be replaced with truth and lies be replaced with truth. That's how your mind is sanctified. But then the other thing that is sanctified is not just your mind, it's your heart. 
That's what I put here. It's not just your learning, but your love needs to be sanctified. The heart there, right? And so the heart is all about our feeling. If our mind is about our thinking, our heart is about our feelings, all right? And guys, I want you to know that your, your feelings need to be discipled. If you're a Christian, you can grow even in that understanding. Your, your, your emotions need to be discipled. And how are your emotions discipled? Again, first in the learning. You know, and what have you learned from God? Remember what I said a minute ago, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Well, how do you get the joy of the Lord when you first, it's an experience of knowing the Lord. And so when you get to know Christ, it produces a what? An emotion. Your mind is sanctified and then your heart is, which I know here, I don't know if, in, in, if it's a Western thing, but you know, we tend to think that the mind and the heart is two separate things, right? I, I think and my heart is two. But in Hebrew and some other cultures, no, the heart and the mind are the same thing. They're one. Your heart and your mind is the essence of who you are deep down inside. But you, uh, you guys understand, you all agree, right? It's, it's, there's a difference between knowing something and there's a difference between believing, right? It's there though. You can know it, but just because you know it doesn't mean that you can believe it. But if you believe it, it's because you know enough of it to believe it, to be true, yes or no? Of course. And so here's what he's saying. It's one thing to know about God, but it's another thing to know the Lord. It's knowing about him versus knowing him right there. You know, I, I used this a couple weeks ago. Another Spanish, I don't know. I guess I'm a, I'm a Spanish teacher at heart. So I, I, there's the Spanish words for saber and conocer, same thing. To saber is to know knowledge, but to conocer is to know someone. And that's the one that God wants us to do. He wants to know us here. He wants to know us here. And so he's praying for their heart. And how is a heart sanctified? If the mind is sanctified by reversing, by re replacing lies and truth, the heart is sanctified when the love and the hate is reversed. Because when, you're, when you weren't a believer, for those of you that, have, that, that are, prior to all of us, believing in Christ Jesus, you hated naturally the things that God loved and you loved the things that God hated. That's called sin. That's called sin. We, that, and so that was a big deal. But when you are in Christ, now the hate is being reversed. The more we grow in the understanding of who God is. And now that's what the truth does is that the things we want to grow in loving the things that God loves and hating the things that God hates. And how do we get there? Through, again, the knowledge of who God is. This is why Paul would say over and over again, I count everything as lost compared to knowing Christ. Everything? I count everything. And when he says lost, he literally means just poop. But excrement. You know, he's not cussing, but he came to the closest word that he can do to come to the cuss word there. It's like, listen, I count everything as, okay? I count everything as that compared to knowing Christ. Nothing else matters but knowing Christ because when I know him, it changes me. It affects me. And that's what he would always say. I preach nothing but Christ crucified over and over again because it's in the knowledge of when we know and when that knowledge hits our heart and it and notice even the the fruits of the spirit which is really interesting which is the next thing all right if you think of the fruits of the spirit the holy spirit produces its love the first one always is mentioned is love and you know what the next one is love joy do you see when you receive the love of god and are encountered by the love of god it produces a love for god because there's joy that is popped up and that joy comes with peace joy and peace love joy peace and by the way joy and peace always tend to be coupled together because when there's a joy from the lord there's also peace to know i have been made right with god 
God really does love me. Like it's a peace because you're secure again in footing, your spiritual footing. And so look at that emotions there. And when we're confronted with the love, our heart, our mind is sanctified, our heart is sanctified, and then our life ought to be sanctified, our actions. That's where it goes, learning, loving, and living. And so how is someone sanctified? What was Jesus praying for for them? He was praying that they may continue to be sanctified in their learning, sanctified in their loving, because he said, the way you love one another is how others will know that you are my disciples. So he cares very much. He literally just said this in the previous chapter. The way you love is how everyone will know that you are my disciples. And then he is very concerned about the way they live. Because all of everything right now is all internal, correct? How I think, how I feel, what are we left with? How I live. And so he's praying that right there. Notice he says, they, you know, the world hated them. The world hates them. So protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them by the truth. Not so they may know it, so they, they may reflect it. Live in it. Reveal it. So it's Christ can be revealed in them. And so this is where the Holy Spirit comes in and takes that internal truth from the inside out. Right? From the inside out. If you, by the way, if you look at the rest of the fruits of the Spirit, which I'm going to run them, pay attention to how are they reflected. You got love, which is the first one, and it produces joy. Peace, pay attention to the rest. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. Last one, self-control. Right? Now, I know with those, listen, with those, I, I'm sure, guys, I, I, I'm sure with all of us, you know, there's, we all have areas to grow in all of those things. Me too. We all have areas. We're not batting a thousand in all of these emotions. Maybe for some of you, you're more patient than others. You're more kind than others, depending on the day, depending on the mood, depending on if you had your coffee, right? And so all those things, right? But the thing is, did you not see what are all of those in common? Aren't those all actions? Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. I missed one. Self-control. That's outward. So the love and joy and peace that's on the inside is what fuels all of those things on the outside. So to encourage you is what I encourage myself. When I realize, man, you know what? I'm not being as kind as I ought to be. Then how, if, let me help you. I know I'm breaking my rule. Okay, we're going to come back to this, okay? Because it's supposed to be about the disciples. I just broke my own rule. See how hard this is? Okay, so I'm going to break my rule for a second. All right? If you're lacking in one of those areas, how do you fix it? Let's say it's kindness. I'm not too kind. Or if it's patient, I'm not patient. I'm not gentle enough. Then... Go look at how, how gentle, examples in which God was gentle towards people. Look at how God showed patience. L look how God showed faithfulness. Look to him. And you know what's beautiful about it is that it's, it's, you don't have to be him, but just look to him and let the Holy Spirit continue to mold and shape you. And so, so G these guys saw him over and over again. And so now let me go back to them. So Jesus, again, he's praying for their sanctity. Why? Because he knows all hell is going to come out them. And so he doesn't want them just to survive. He wants them to thrive. You see that? That's what he's praying for. He wants them to thrive. And how? By that they may be sanctified by the truth. Now, let me show you this little picture here. Would you guys all consider online? You vote. I need a yes or no from online, and I need here. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Would anybody consider this and call this chocolate milk? Would you call this chocolate milk? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Is it chocolate milk? All right. I don't have one... But, yeah, see, I knew it. It's, all right, everyone here, thumbs up if it's, yep, that is chocolate milk. It is chocolate milk. Thumbs down is chocolate. It's not chocolate milk. All right? I got like 98% online of everybody here telling me, thumbs down, it's not chocolate milk. Why? Because the chocolate and the milk are what? They're not mixed. 
right? It's all settled down. But some people have said, well, hold on. Technically, there's chocolate in the milk. I know, we're all, we always got that person, right? We always got that. I was like, technically, there's chocolate in the milk. So it is chocolate milk, but it has the potential to be chocolate milk. But it is in there. I don't think about that. Now, obviously, guys, I know some of you guys were doing it. I'm sure online some of you said it. They were all doing this, you know? So obviously, what needs to be done here, right? If you don't stir it, you're just going to get all milk, and you're going to get all that bluck at the back. You know, it's all weird. So you're going to have to, right, stir it up. Here's the thing, all right? So um, this, if you're a believer in Christ, okay, the technically, technically, you guys are, uh, you know, Isaac, you, you are right in the sense that, listen, there is chocolate in the milk, so we can't deny that. There is chocolate in the milk. And, but there needs to be a stirring that needs to happen. Because if there's no stirring, and by the way, if, has anyone ever done it and stirred it and then left it alone and then it's, all the chocolate settles back down again? Try it if you've never done it. And so here's the thing about this. The disciples, when they believed in Jesus, there's salvation in them. And really soon after the resurrection, and so the Holy Spirit will be deposited in them. And the scripture says that if you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit is deposited in you as a guarantee and down payment for eternal life. But you know what we're also called to do? The same thing that Jesus was praying for them. Paul would say over and over again, he would say in examples, like, hey, stir one another up. That's an English word. He was like, stir each other up, encourage each other, love one another. Love one another is an action. Again, what is stirring of the spoon but movement, right? And so the truth of God needs to stir our minds and stir our hearts so that it can stir and transform our lives. You see how that works? But the more you're not stirring the mind, your heart will be affected and your life will eventually, you'll see a separation, a separation there. When we're supposed to be chocolate milk, we're supposed to be Christ-like. And so he is praying that they may continue that the Holy Spirit, even though he hasn't mentioned the Holy Spirit yet, but the Spirit of truth is the Holy Spirit. So when he's saying, Father, sanctify them by your truth, the word is truth, he's mentioning the Holy Spirit there. He's saying, Lord, Father, stir them up by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Word and it's the Spirit of truth. Now what makes... This prayer of Jesus praying for his disciples and apostles that they may be sanctified in the truth. What makes this prayer more incredible is that we have documented evidence that the Father not only heard this prayer, but answered it. And we have it in the book of Acts. See, the book of Acts is the one that follows and follows the church follows the apostles for the first 30 years of the church's history post the resurrection. And in it, we see a documented story of how they, in Acts 2.42, they said they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, which was nothing but relaying the message of Jesus, everything and unpacking everything that he had shown them, everything that the Spirit had revealed to them, looking into the Old Testament, how it always had been pointing to him. And not only did they devote themselves to the, that, to the truth, and praying and fellowship and living out the truth, but we see that at the very beginning, but when we see the whole story of the book of Acts, we see that despite the darkness and despite the opposition from the enemy, despite from the kingdom of darkness, the church, the apostles, were not only secured in the truth, but they were sanctified by it. And over and over and over again, we see Luke six times 
give a progress report in the book of Acts and say, and the Lord added to their number and the kingdom of God continued to expand. See, we serve a living, loving God who answers prayers according to his will. And Jesus, Jesus prayed this prayer according to the will of God. And these apostles and the, the apostles and the disciples and everyone, listen, they suffered. They suffered, but yet took the name of God that Jesus gave them, like we were just looking at, and the very word of God that he had revealed to them, and he took it all around the world. And here it is, over 2,000 years later, you are hearing the same message of Jesus. Why? Because we serve a God who answers prayers. And so, so far we have been looking at primarily the disciples, right? This text was not about you necessarily. It was all about them. This was the direct focus of this prayer. But yet there is an indirect lesson for us to learn. Because in the same way Jesus prayed for them in this way, and we see the importance of being secured and in the truth, and sanctified by the truth, the same applies to us. And there's an element of the prayer in which Jesus talks about how the apostles are just like him, are no longer of this world, right? They are not of this world, yet they are in this world and sent to it, all right? Now, that's an interesting phrase that we need to break down because they understood this, or they learned to understand it more and more, and you and I need to learn as well as we look at the book of Acts, as we look at uh, how God answered this prayer through the apostles, we need to understand how that applies to us. What does it mean to be in this world yet not of it, and then sent to it? Because that's the important one. And so the bottom line is this. This is something that we saw. How did God answer the prayer? How did it flesh out for them to be sanctified by the truth? Well, what does it look like to be sanctified by the truth? It means to be in it, not of it, but yet in the word. And so, and being a people of the word, all right? Sent to the world to reflect the word, the truth of God. So the bottom line is this. This is a lesson we can learn, that we are to be insulated from the world, not isolated from it. We are to be insulated from the world, not isolated from it. To be isolated from the world is a perspective in which some Christians take. To be isolated from the world is, is there's a truism in there, and there's some wisdom to be taken from that. To be isolated from the world is to separate yourself from the world. But yet, there's an extreme to that in which everything that is uh, not God is either rejected, um, judged, um, unnecess not unnecessarily, but maybe a little too strictly. Um, you don't interact with people who are not Christians. Like, the only people you talk to are Christians. The only people you you know, deal with their Christians. And, and there, there's be, there becomes this compartmentalization between the things of God and the things of this world. And it's very easy for someone to be judgmental towards others who are not in the group, in the circle. Uh, to be isolated from it is to reject all things. Um, and, and, and again, there's, a, there's an extreme way. Again, I, you know, the isolation as well not only can become relationally, um, but just in, just in general with a connection. Now, there's a truism to this, and the truism is that there, there must be a separation. 
between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, okay? The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. There is an isolation. Like, we cannot engage in the things of this world and simultaneously walk in the ways of God. So that's why I'm using the word insulated, because to be insulated is to still be in something, yet understanding you are not of it. To be insulated is to focus on being first influenced by the word of God, not by the world that we are in. And so insulated is different. Isolated is one in which we retreat, in which the church retreats away from the world, away from the lost and the dying, away from those without hope. That's an, ins- that's an isolated approach. The insulated one is an outward one. It's going to, yet consciously aware that, uh, you know, there's a situation out here that we, we do not live in this or of this. Okay? It's different. This is what it looks like to be secured and sanctified in the truth. And so to give you an image, think of a scuba diver. Okay? A scuba diver is... And I want you to not just to think of any scuba diver. I want you to think of a scuba diver who's doing work inside of the water, you know, repairing pipes, um, creating something, doing something to, uh, you know, a fishing boat. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, building a, a pier or whatever on the bottom end. OK, imagine a scuba diver. There's a lot of jobs in which you have to wear scuba gear in order to do down there, you know, exploring, um, sampling so many things. Well, that's what it looks like to be in the world, not of it. That's what it looks like to be sanctified by the truth. Because, see, a scuba diver is not of the world of water. All right? It's not of it. They're not like fish, right? Um, not like those kind of animals. A scuba diver is not of that world. But yet they are able to operate in it. Why? Because they are insulated because of the things that they have, the gear that allows them to operate in a world that they are not of, right? There's the external skin, right? The, the, all that gear, the masks, the, the wetsuit, and more importantly, that tank of air. See, that's what it looks like for a Christian to be insulated, not isolated from the truth, because we are covered, not in a wetsuit, but every Christian is covered in the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ Jesus. And not only that, we have the tank of oxygen, the breath of life that is the Holy Spirit, that is the very word of God. And when we are covered in the righteousness of Christ and consuming the very breath of God that is found in his word, we are able to operate and live and thrive in a world that we are not of, yet we are sent to. That's what it looks like. That's the end goal, again, of being transformed, sustained by the truth of who God is, covered and sustained, secured and sanctified by the truth. In fact, I have this application here, and I had to mess with the words and because and, I didn't like the first way that I wrote it the first way it came off, and I, I felt like it was implying the wrong thing. So what I landed on was this. All right, in order to be insulated by the word, all right, and from, uh, from the world, 
All right, we need to understand this, that we can only live wisely in this world when we live regularly by God's word. We can only live wisely in this world when we live regularly by God's word. The first time I, re- I said that, I, I said we can only live rightly. And I didn't like rightly because that kind of implies we're doing it right and so-and-so is doing it wrong. But wisely is, is different. Wisely imparts a, a level of growing. But at the same time, it is a wise thing to live according to God's word. And, and I put the word regularly. Okay, again, think of a scuba diver. Scuba diver can't just take a couple puffs of the air from the tank, jettison the tank, and think he can continue to operate. Okay, they have to regularly breathe, right? And the same thing, you and I need to regularly live in and by God's word so that it transforms us. That's what the, that's what the church in Acts did, like I mentioned, in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves, devoted, dedicated, regular habit to the teachings of the apostles. That was the number one thing. The number one verb in the book of Acts was teaching. It was the proclamation and unpacking of the truth of God. And because of that, like what Jesus said, God was glorified. And to me, that is one of the most beautiful statements in this part of the prayer in which Jesus pre-resurrection, pre-cross, says, I am glorified in them. I mean, we're, we're barely, who knows, 90 minutes or so away. We're probably like 90 minutes away from the people, from the apostles, um, actually abandoning Jesus, all right? And, and then, you know, not believing at the tomb. I mean, how is he already glorified in them? Because they believed. That's what Jesus was saying. God was glorified because they put their trust in him and they believed and it was counted to them as righteousness. Just like in the Old Testament, just like Abraham, just like all of those. And what's beautiful is that God glorified himself through imperfect people because even in the book of Acts we see they, they made mistakes and, and, and they didn't get in things right. And it took them under, time to understand certain things still. And that's the beautiful side of how God is glorified through us is that his faithfulness shines through our flaws. There's grace for the process. If there was grace for the apostles, there's grace for us. And so we need to understand this lesson and apply it to ourselves as we look to Christ. For our identity is secured and sanctified in Christ according to the truth of God in the name and nature of this God. And what's wonderful is that in the same way that we are not of this world anymore because we follow a God that, that is not of this world, who has remade us and made us a new creatures, creation in Christ Jesus. And this identity, security, this joy, this purpose, this peace cannot be found in this world, but can only be found in a God who is out of this world. A God who is out of this world, patient, out of this world, incredible, out of this world, holy. There is none other like Jesus, none other like our God. And so I ask you, Because if you are not 
secured in the truth can be sanctified in it. And if you are not being sanctified in it, then you are not saved by it. And the same truth of God that can save you, can sanctify you, and sustain you. All you have to do is place your trust in the name of Jesus. Ask him for the forgiveness of your sins. Let him sanctify you in that way. Recognize your faults and trust in his faithfulness.